0: It's episode number 33 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the show is web animation expert, Rachel Neighbors. We talk about her new book, Animation at Work, and how to find the appropriate use of animation on the web by understanding human perception and cognition, and how these powerful new capabilities require significant responsibility. So let's get right to it. I'm really glad we were able to work this out because we are in the weird week where, in the UK, we have already turned back our clocks, but in the US, you have not, and so all of my scheduled calls and everything have been in disarray this week. But I'm glad I caught you; we made it work somehow.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad, Jeff. It's been oh, it, it's been a couple of years, I think, since we last chatted. It has
0: been we've uh, I've attended a couple I think a couple of the same conferences um but i' I enjoy your presentations um because lots of stuff moves around, which is nice
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the past couple of years, I've mostly been talking about uh, how animation is impacting how we build websites and what it means for the future of interaction design on the web
0: that's big, that's a big topic. um what's your thesis? Can I it just is. Like, like do you have like talking points here that uh it's fundamentally changing human interaction or anything like that?
1: Well, it's not that it's changing human interaction. It's more like it's changing the interaction model for the web platform. When the web was originally fired up, it was, you know, HTML documents. It was sort of this universal open source markup language for writing documents and putting them at this universal address, the URL, so people could find it. If you think about it, it was sort of like a very rudimentary PDF. They weren't supposed to move. They weren't supposed to interact.
0: Right. Right. It was all about, uh, you know, document repositories and null and sharing and permanent addresses and things like that, all of which were insanely important then and now, but um, oh, but yes. very different design goals from where we ended up today. huh?
1: Absolutely. And when you think about it, the people who are building uh, the, the frameworks for building apps in like XAML, Swift, etc., uh, they've been thinking about animation for a very long time. Uh, Macs, uh, the core animations of Mac were, were being built long, long ago with anticipation that one day people would want to build apps that would move and respond to user interactions. Mm-hmm. And the web is now playing playing catch up with native in that department. On the bright side, uh, the web pretty much piggybacks on the capabilities of whatever device it's on, so the browser can only realize what the what the operating system can actually do. So, on the bright side, fortunately, operating systems have been building ahead with the the idea that animation would be a big deal, especially in a touch uh, touch based interaction. So, the web just has to build those APIs and and learn how to incorporate animation into the. A new app like web that we're building today.
0: So that's that's you could help me understand that just a little bit. The connection into native APIs around animation and movement and and things like that. Because you know from from my history going way back when we started with a thing called DHTML for Dynamic HTML, which was uh, even before like the days of AJAX and things like that. You know we moved divs around on the screen using JavaScript, and it was you know there was a little bit of math and a little bit of code, and um, and the performance was always really crappy and uh, we had very little control over things uh, and then some libraries came and stuff like that but it feels like we are just 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 generations uh removed from that today
1: oh, i'm so glad you brought that up so i'm actually writing a keynote for this con uh, J- javascript congress js congress in munich in just a couple of weeks i'm going to be up there i think it's uh november 14th i deliver this in the morning and. It Basically, t- I'm talking about how DHTML uh, is allowed, you know, it paved the way for today because that was when people working on browsers started thinking about maybe HTML can be more than just a document format. Right. And that was when I-, I think it was Internet Explorer 4 introduced the document object model API, right, right. which for many years later, web developers complained was terrible, etc., but this API allows the JavaScript uh, allows the JavaScript engine to interact with elements on the page, move them around, repaint them, all kinds of great things. So without that DHTML movement, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, or we'd be having it about a, a different model. I remember those books. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, the, the huge like doorstop books with hundreds of pages that had uh-huh. to do this all this stuff. Yeah, I would, you know, I would ar- also argue back then that frankly, Flash for as much as like people considered it sort of not native to the web and, and in many ways it's traction from the web, from the purity of the web and things like that uh, outside of the scope of standards and all of that, frankly was the, was the prototyping area like showing what the web could be. And so as much as I am, you know, and and what it's been a few, a couple of months now when Adobe actually announced like, all right, like this is it. Mm. We're, we're winding it all down, like get, get your stuff out you're not gonna be able to do it anymore my reflection on that was like oh my god if we hadn't had that like all of the css transitions and all this animation stuff that we're Mm -hmm. doing now like i think we would be a long a lot farther behind had we not had that sort of playground
1: there is this pixar quote from john Lasseter that i'm in love with which is like you know technology enables art, art inspires technology. And the idea is that it's this constant little spiral upwards of one chasing the tail of the other. And around the time that CSS3, I was just listening to your, your conversation with Jen Simmons and remembering her talking about how, like, oh my gosh, uh, vendor prefixes oh, on right. CSS animations and yep. transitions, because it was It was the Safari team that introduced them. Uh, They wanted to bring animation to to Safari on the iPhone so that sites could look as nice on the iPhone as as the apps did. And that was really sweet. Um, But anyway, getting back to what I was saying, all these things, we couldn't realize them back, back in the day of just HTML document, object, model, et cetera. Flash really showed us what we could do. And right. yes, front-end developers will complain about performance and glitches. And there was this time when CSS vendor prefixes and CSS3 became a thing where front-end developers had a huge backlash against uh Flash developers, ActionScript developers. I remember this was around the time I started getting on stages and speaking about animating things with CSS and and JavaScript and Whenever it was like a really easy, cheap way to get a laugh out of the audience <laughs> to just you know take a stab at Flash, Totally. But I totally. would see the pure, the person in the back who was actually both front end developer and interaction designer who'd been using Flash just kind of shrink and withdraw from the community, and that was so bad because people who worked with Flash knew a lot of things about performance and comp and rendering that's very important to where the web is now, and that kind of isolating of other people by oh, making yeah. fun of them and Banging on their technology stack, I'm sorry, but I have nothing but the most respect for Flash and the people who developed on that platform, and they are valuable to us as we move forward. We, we can't, we can't cast them out. And yeah, Flash has gone away, Our but tribes are so important to us.
0: Uh, <laughs> no, I know. I agree with you. Uh, absolutely. And I do think, yeah, they have very much paved the way for the kind of stuff that we certainly see in native apps every day uh, but in, in, and more and more and more on the web as well with the kind of work that you've been doing. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I know many people who are building things with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript today who are inspired by new grounds, who are inspired by uh, all the beautiful interactive work of yesterday. So, you know, that's another example of, you know, technology flash enabling art which in turn inspired the technology we're seeing all these animation libraries cropping up in javascript uh, we've got yeah, webgl coming yeah. out of our ears so so yeah flash inspired art inspired more technology which is inspiring art <laughs> it's wonderful i i love this process
0: i agree i absolutely do too um and i want it so all right so we've we there is a a platform now that we can build on um a lot of this uh this book that you've written animation at work is really about it's less about how do we build on the platform and more like what should we be doing what are the right choices to make around all of this when is the right time to use animation when is it tasteful when is it distracting and things like that you want to
1: want to set the stage a little bit around that sure so Web developers, front-end developers and web designers have had a long history of our workflow looks like someone makes something, a flat file in Photoshop, they or they send it as a, a PDF or a JPEG to a developer, that developer recreates, and I'm using air quotes with my fingers now, you can't hear it, <laughs> but I'm doing it, recreates it with Pixel perfection. I, I can't tell you how many job listings back in my junior years were like, we want a front-end developer who can recreate uh, a design with pixel perfection. This was long before responsive was a thing, and people were like, to heck with pixels. So <laughs> uh, that, that focus on this kind of document-based strategy around bringing an idea from concept to implementation doesn't really have any sort of an interaction model around it. Most of the people who were working with Flash were doing things as kind of a one-off rock star situation where you'd have the Flash developer get in there and realize a concept not unlike game development. Yeah, so yeah. animation and where you use it in building an app wasn't ever really codified. Nobody actually talked about why you should be using animation, except for, well, it just looks better that way, which isn't a good way to convince a person who's setting up a team and allotting time for things that we should spend time on this thing. So we got this web development process that doesn't Understand why or where we should use animation, but they do know that to compete with native apps and to give people a better experience on touch interfaces, animation has to fit in there somewhere, but how? So I wrote this book basically to explain to people coming from that kind of workflow here's where you can spot opportunities to use animation here are some common patterns that are repeated over and over again here is why animation works with the human brain and why you can't really leave it out of your design your design uh, system out of your design process because if you do you're leaving a lot of uh, a lot of cognitive benefits on the table
0: so what yeah so what is the argument there around that like like this idea that animation would lower the cognitive load that a user would have while trying to parse and uh, and accomplish tasks with an interface. How does that work? Like, uh, what is the, how, do you, how do you justify that claim?
1: Well, it all comes down to cause and effect. Now, when you show people a picture of something, like a, a picture with a ball on one side of the page, like, you know, you've got someone with a screen and they see a, a one, at one moment the screen shows a circle on one side of the page. And on the next screen, it shows a, a, a circle that's the same size, color, and everything. It's on the other side of the page. Now the human brain, in that situation does a lot of magical things behind the scenes it it does a lot of inference it it 's going to say, "Well, if that ball looks like this ball i 'm going to assume that this ball moved to that side that is the same thing i 'm going to draw that connection and go that requires a lot of cognitive processes. It's a, it increases cognitive load for a person to have to constantly be tracking all these individual objects and drawing inferences between cause and effect and which one is which and where they are and what's changed. Uh, essentially, with every time a person is navigating a website, their brain on each new flash of white as the page is moving to another URL and everything's being repainted in, Got it. Uh, the brain yeah. is analyzing, okay, we're in the same place. What's changed? What just happened? Now with animation, you can show people what just happened. You can show the ball moving from one side to the other. You can show them that the the sidebar slid out from the side. And if you hit the Xbox, it's probably going to slide back in that direction. So you're increasing both, you know, You're decreasing cognitive load by showing people what exactly is going on so they don't have to maintain this really complicated mental model. And you're also uh, increasing their, their feeling of reliability in this system because not only are they seeing what's happened, but they can infer what's going to happen next because an equal and opposite reaction will occur. So it does a great, great service to the web as a platform to be able to embrace these technologies, uh, well, these experiences that native apps have been using ever since the iPhone launched.
0: Interesting, interesting. It re- that reminds me a little bit of, there was this book years ago, maybe 15 years ago, called Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. <laughs> yes! Yes. Oh my God, I love that book. Everybody should read it. I am literally putting <laughs> yes, a link to yes, it yes, in the show yes. notes right now. And I seem to have excited you. I'm glad. That's good. Um, but he talked a lot about the interstitial space between panels of comics and the inferences that we make uh, and how you, can, oh, yeah. how you can manipulate that or, or to tell a story and leave bits out and things like that. So it reminds me a lot of that. that that's essentially what animation can do is, is to help fill in that interstitial space.
1: Yes. And, you know, interstitial space is wonderful if you're doing like a, a (laughs) if you're doing an art film or you're, you're giving someone a comic, which is essentially a glorified storyboard, or Uh you could say that a storyboard is a rudimentary comic. It depends on where you're looking at it from. And, uh, animation does help take out that, uh, that room for the imagination and I got to say, I, have this, I, I do have this saying that whatever you don't tell people explicitly, their imagination will fill in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they fill it in in ways you would not want them to. Uh, so you, you always want to be guiding that internal story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting
0: definition of usability, right? Like usability is when they get the story wrong, the story you're trying to tell, they, they imagine a different one right? So my expectations no longer match what I see on the screen. I don't know what's happening and I'm confused. Hmm.
1: I like that. That's good. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Understanding Comics is a great, great book, but very few people know that that Scott McCloud also wrote Making Comics, which is a great book to read if you're thinking, I would like to sit down and draw some comics. Highly recommend if you think you want to get into storyboarding, you can't go wrong with making comics. But my particular favorite of the trifecta, which I do think Understanding Comics should be mandatory reading for anybody building anything that people are going to interact with. I say this as a former award-winning cartoonist, so I might be (laughs) a bit biased there. Uh, But I think his third book, Reinventing Comics, is very prescient. I actually keep a copy by my bed. A lot of the things that Scott predicted in there, from micropayments to drawing surfaces people can carry with them everywhere that produce digital art, they're (sighs) happening now. And what other of his predictions are going to come true? How is that going to impact how we create and interact with each other it's a good book to read and think about
0: yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. So we talked a little bit about cognitive load, like the idea that you can help people understand like the metaphors that your interface is trying to to provide for them. What other things uh you you talk a little bit about change blindness and uh, and I find that a pretty fascinating sort of phenomenon that happens when people are, are looking at a screen and um, and tell me a little bit more about that
1: well we all spend I got, actually i got a question for you jeffrey
0: i'll do my best how
1: long do you spend staring at a screen every day whether it's in your hand or it's you know mounted in front of you be it a tv or a computer how long all of it <laughs> all of it i don't know uh right? I, right right it's
0: it's continuous throughout the day uh except for explicit moments of like you know going to yoga class or something where where i but but for the rest of the time, it's just all the time.
1: Oh, my God. I need more of those moments in my life. So, all right. When you're looking at a screen, you know how you get into that focused mode where you don't really notice what's happening around you? Like mm-hmm. someone could be dancing off to your peripheral vision and you just wouldn't even notice that right. they would got up out of their chair that is kind of a tunnel vision. And it's really common when people are working with screens, whether you're like totally focused on a cinema screen or, you know, you're staring at your phone and not paying attention to oncoming traffic or tripping on a curb like I did the other night. Ouch. Uh, do not text and walk across streets, people. It's just bad news. <laughs> so this is a form of kind of tunnel vision of, or even change blindness. The, the peripheral of our vision Uh, over on the edges of our retina actually doesn't see. It doesn't necessarily send a lot of visual signals back to the brain. It's sensitive to contrast and motion. In fact, at the very, very tip of your your retina, the very edges, uh, it doesn't even send visual signals back to the brain. It just tells the brain you should move the eye in this direction if there's a strong motion detected. It's pretty interesting, right? So, one of the issues with change blindness is sometimes people start ignoring the messages coming from their peripheral vision. Right. Their brain just focuses in on that what is right in the center of its fovea. And and what happens is it doesn't it doesn't really notice if like a sidebar completely updates or maybe you know this ad has been jumping around uh, at the bottom of the page and the brain is just like I'm going to ignore the, the stuff at the bottom of the page because that's changing too much. So that's kind of change-inducing change blindness uh, right. as opposed to just you know, human focus-inducing change blindness. And this can be a problem when you're trying to get people to interact with the system. Perhaps people are using an app that will alert them when their house is being broken into or their children need something from them. You don't want them to just not realize that, you know, part of the, the, the interface they're using just updated to tell them this important information. You want to attract their attention to the important information on the page, whether it's the thing you're trying to sell them or it's an important alert can use animation to help break through that change blindness if you use it uh, if you use it appropriately for instance this is why having very motion intense moving ads and things are bad because you're squandering this very yeah. precious resource that you can use to pop people out of their their uh, their change blindness their yeah. focus their inability to see anything else going on that's where my so head was motions, going with all of this yeah. right
0: is that like ad banners have exploited this for so long that it it, it it seems like a lot to get over that for for people to have to to use animation in a way that is ostensibly helpful, but could be perceived Mm -hmm. as just another distraction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the major things I noticed when doing user testing uh, in animated animated systems is if anyone even says, Oh my gosh, this is a, this is delightful. I love that animation used. Like if people notice the animation at all, it's a bad thing. It usually means that by like the 80th time they use that system, they're going to find it slow. They're going to find it annoying. They're going to they're going to not like it. Like, you know, Microsoft's Clippy. Remember that? Yeah. I thought he was so cute when I first met him. And then after a while, it was like, how do I turn this thing off? Yeah. So there's a lot in the book about how you want to make sure that your animations are discrete, so you're not ramping up the, uh, the change in inputs and overwhelming your users.
0: This week's episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom. Start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com slash RelayFM. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a site, and they do this by offering powerful and easy-to-use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website will be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your website, checking availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and often include several dependencies, such as contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and loads more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. And it's not just about the whole site anymore. Look, let's be real. Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects like 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 And outages every day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or managing complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is the URL you wish to monitor and they'll take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so that you can fix the error before the downtime affects you. You don't want to get caught out when someone wants to access your website, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. So go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM for a 14-day free trial and use code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So let's talk a little bit about you mentioned workflow earlier and how teams and and process might uh, accommodate bringing animation into uh, the the products that they're working working on because you know th- we have this tradition of like swapping documents back and forth like PDFs of, of wireframes or mockups or whatever that then developers work on um but it feels like we really have to get into these interactive systems whether they're you know some of the prototyping tools that are out there or even like doing things in keynote to be able to get the basics of animations together like how are people managing all of that these days
1: To be honest I've used keynote quite a bit myself I I need to update my own workflow because I'm a keynote and storyboards kind of lady mm-hmm. but but the important thing to notice here is how much how people build for the web is changing uh, if you talk with any teams in like a tech hub like Seattle or San Francisco you'll find that they aren't sending each other psds anymore you will have like a designer who will make something in sketch then you'll have someone port sketch into invision mm. uh, or yep. or framer and those tools these prototyping tools have animation baked in So then, I mean, it makes sense that you would prototype it, you'd bake the animation in, you would hand it to people to use, see if it works. You don't actually start coding uh, a final product until you're uh, you're assured that this is the interaction that you want, this is the one that people respond best to. It's getting harder and harder to find uh, large companies, at least, that don't have animation baked into a prototyping process. The prototyping role has expanded uh, such to the point that uh, front-end development roles are, are more common in small to medium-sized companies and shops than they are in large companies that can afford to have uh, full-time prototyping departments. So we've seen that bringing animation to the web workflow has changed this workflow. It's changed the tool chain. Uh, and that if anybody wants to build things like you know Photoshop, pardon, um, <laughs> Adobe made Adobe XD, and at, at first, Adobe XD didn't have any animation tools in it. It's a little kind of like a wireframing uh, wire program. And that is like their number one thing that they've been working on is bringing animation to their prototyping tool because there's no way it will be relevant without it.
0: Mm. Which, frankly, would probably end up looking a lot like Flash, you know, <laughs> um, uh, as it all or comes around. Or a like Envision. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So
0: in all of that, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been um spending a lot of time uh working with people and thinking about it's around style guides and their implementation across bigger and bigger companies and uh tooling around that i think it sounds like the equivalent for a uh like a set of animations would be more like a almost a physics model right like everything should feel as if it has the same uh, for lack of a better word gravity to it uh is that something you see as well
1: I've noticed this. I I worked with Salesforce on their lightning design system on the motion portion. It's interesting how we've seen the word style guide being supplanted by design system. Uh And I think part of this is because the web is not just a document. It's it's interactive. It's kind of app-like. It's kind of document. It could be anything. So companies that have more of an app-like interaction model tend to be getting design systems. Those design systems include interaction patterns. They include like animations should last for this amount of time. Animations should use this easing, you know, the rate of change, whether it's a a speed up and a slow down or a slow acceleration, et cetera. And, And people are really making animations a part of their overall system's branding. And I, I love seeing how animation is becoming just another thing that people use to make great experiences.
0: Mm, but there's but nothing specific say, like tooling or anything like that around trying to keep everything consistent or people like building just their own libraries or set of defaults or... Does it all work?
1: So far, it's not set in stone. Not like how, so so animation, as you can see, has become a a regular player in the prototyping uh, toolchain software business, right? Mm, Yeah. However, there's no real software yet around building design systems. I've seen a couple of really interesting products come on the market just in the past couple of weeks. I've forgotten the names of them because it's so recent. But I think this is going to be where we're going to see the next set of product offerings coming from. Uh, you know, make design systems directly from your files. Yeah. Have this wonderful living document that updates, et cetera. Right now, most of these are homegrown, so you find you you end up with like a set of developers who's trying to normalize all the the colors and the margins, et cetera, across the sites to reduce code bloat. And maybe they throw in a handful of easing curves and some times, et cetera, or a couple of patterns, but you don't really see like the animations being locked down the way you see things like you know typographic scales being locked down. I think that's going to change in the next two years. I think we're going to see animations and interaction patterns themselves become parts of more and more modular design systems as opposed to style guides, at least for large companies. Smaller companies probably don't have the resources to do that. It's probably still going to for a while until there is an out-of-the-box solution remain the domain of developers reusing things.
0: Mm, Yeah, 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 that makes sense. But uh, ultimately, it seems like consistency is just as important when it comes to the the behavior of a page as it is to the appearance of a page.
1: Absolutely. I one of the things I notice is like there's two ways that animation goes in in teams that don't have their their animations locked down like we were talking about you'll end up with designers who will send developers videos and prototypes, and the developers will try to realize them, but the designers will always be unhappy with the level of detail that the developer was able to grok. Uh, fortunately, we're seeing more tooling like Body Move-In and a couple of things from uh, the Google Design team coming out that allow designers to export, uh, export values directly from After Effects that developers can then implement, so oh, the fidelity and the communication is getting a lot stronger between that part of the process. But then the other thing is, the other other pattern I'm seeing a lot is you've got developers, like front-end developers, who really like animation and it's so cool and I just want to make it look a little prettier. They've implemented something from kind of like a flat design document that somebody sent them and they decided... I'm going to make the drop down work. I'm going to make it actually like drop down from the top. And then, <laughs> you know, on the other side of the building, another developer is like, oh my God. And when you hover over this button, it's going to do this thing. That looks so cool. So you find that developers are also taking the animation bone and running with it. And that can lead to inconsistency as well because one developer is not going to be the gatekeeper for the animation implementation across a system. So, yeah, that is in. In, I always notice when I'm on a site or I'm using a, an app made with web technologies and mm-hmm. it's like, oh my gosh, this drop down on this page works like this and this one on this page works like that. That looks so cheap. Oh so, my yeah. gosh.
0: So it's the same as every other kind of development and design and just making things consistent is, is difficult because it's a very human problem.
1: Absolutely. And just have, I mean, it all comes down to communication. The thing I say whenever I'm working with people who, are are you know bringing animation into their processes? Animation is going to be rough because it sits squarely at the intersection of design, user experience, and development. And if you have breakdowns in communication between. Any three of those pillars, it's going to show up here and it's probably going to come out at the end of your process. And everyone's going to be like, Well, why did we invest in that? That's a big pain in the butt. But really, what it really is is a red flag for there's a problem in your communication process. You need to have some kind of a final, you know, pre flight check to make sure that everything is lined up. Your developers and your designers need to be sending each other the right kind of information so that they can actually realize each other's goals. Uh, your user experience team needs to have a greater voice. In the con in the in the, com- in the community about you know what you're going to do for your users and where animation is appropriate it's yeah it's kind of animation is right now like the the thing that shows all the problems it lifts up the rug and shows you all the bugs
0: it sounds like there's a lot of responsibility around sort of the the appropriate use of it as well that that it all comes together around that that um uh it, it's it's very easy to get carried away
1: absolutely and You know, there's not just a budget of time that you have to spend on implementing these things. There's also the budget of the device's performance. If you're on a very small or lightweight device and it doesn't have a lot of resources to animate things perfectly, that can be a problem, too. So you really have to, like, balance what you want to do and pick and choose your battles with animation, which can lead to some very interesting conversations, between uh, different parts of the company that prioritize yeah. different things. I uh,
0: imagine, I imagine. Uh, not the least of which is the accessibility of, of the product and, and the implications of that as well.
1: Yeah, animation is one of those interesting pickles uh, because there's no such thing as you know, an accessible by default animation, unless you're talking about fades, like, you know, you faded in some text. That's pretty accessible, but it doesn't actually show you much for cause and effect, doesn't really reduce cognitive load or break change blindness. It doesn't give you any of those, those boosts, those things that improve the user experience or even accessibility for some folks. Uh, but some folks, they have uh, this thing called a vestibular disorder. These are a host of disorders in the vestibular system, which controls people's balance. It, it takes inputs from eyes, ears, body, etc. And for some folks, animation on a page can make them feel dizzy. Or for some folks who, for instance, uh, Temple Grandin in her book Animals in Translation, she's this awesome woman who's on the the autism spectrum. She writes about how Those animated screensavers are incredibly distracting to her and various people in her community. So Mm. sometimes animation can be a double-edged sword. It can, with one hand, deliver a better experience to some kinds of people and deliver a worse experience for others with the other hand. That's why it's important to offer users choice in how they experience your creation. Mm -hmm. I'm a big proponent of letting people turn animation off. Uh, Safari team has introduced this really wonderful media query that will respect people's reduced motion preferences. You can tap into that and say, hey, if a person doesn't want motion, all the CSS animations, nix them. Yep. That's cool. So we're having this conversation, but it's like at the bleeding edge yeah. of interaction right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that's great stuff. So the book is called Animation at Work. It comes from our friends at A Book Apart. I have a link to that in the show notes, and I encourage everybody. It's great. It's a, It's very concise. It's a short read, densely packed with lots of valuable stuff. So thanks for writing that. I appreciate that. Um, and
1: thank you for reading it. <laughs> yeah.
0: And you are Rachel Neighbors, both on com. Good place to see a lot of your writing and stuff like that. And Rachel Neighbors on Twitter. So you um, can send people there. Anywhere else or anything else you want to mention?
1: If you I would love to give a shout out to the uh, animationatwork.com uh, Slack community if you go to slack.animationatwork.com it's a great place to meet people who are working with animation not just on the web but also with interfaces for uh, app development etc there we've got everything from novice to expert community leaders there it's a great place to get started and meet people who are puzzling out these big problems too And if you love web animation, I've got a newsletter at webanimationweekly.com. It's the best news in this growing space you can get delivered to your inbox every
0: week. You are good at this, at the uh, marketing. Well done.
1: (laughs) That sounded very professional. It's easy when you got a great community. I like that. That's (laughs)
0: great. I will put links to all of those in the notes uh, for this episode. Rachel, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Great conversation.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff. So good to talk with you again.